0: Man, thank you for braving that treacherous, treacherous rain this morning to come to church. I know we have some delicate believers who uh, are home watching online right now. We gave a $50 bonus check to everybody who walked in the door by 9 o'clock, so sorry you missed out. <laughs> oh, I'm glad you're here. Whether you're joining us in person or online, I'm really glad you're here. If you've got a Bible, I want you to grab it and turn with me uh, to the book of Genesis in the second chapter. Genesis chapter 2. Turn there and just hold that ready. For a few minutes, Uh, we do kick off a brand new message series called Family Values this weekend. It's very brief, it's only three weeks long. Uh, And uh, we're gonna start by talking about building a better marriage because that's where family begins with a strong, strong marriage. And so I hope it will be a blessing to you. But before we do that, before we turn our attention to the scriptures and we talk about any of those things, I wanna invite you just to bow with me for a moment of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we love you so much and we are so grateful for every opportunity we have to come together as a family, as a spiritual community to worship you and to experience fellowship with you and fellowship with one another. And as we gather as a spiritual community today, I pray that our hearts would remember that there are people who are suffering today on this anniversary of 9-11, people who still grieve uh, the loss of of loved ones, and just the terror that took place on that day. And I pray, we pray, Father, as a spiritual family for your safety and your protection of our country, your guidance for our country, a country that's filled with division right now in so many ideological ways, but I pray that we would experience the blessing of your protection and your safety. And Father, I also pray today for marriages because... I've been a pastor long enough to know that regardless of the way things look on the outside, oftentimes marriages struggle deeply. And I pray that you would open our hearts today, open the hearts of all who are married, all who long to be married and want to be married one day, look forward to that one day, and that we would receive teaching from your word that would give us strength, And help us to build a foundation for a better marriage. We love you and we pray all those things in Jesus' name. And everyone agreed and said? Amen. Amen. Let me ask you a question this morning. Where did you learn about marriage? Really, honestly, think about that for a minute. It's serious. Where did you learn about being married? Uh, i 'm talking about the whole thing, from meeting someone to dating to falling in love to getting married. Where did you learn about there about that, those things there 's always a lot of interesting things that can be learned when you ask these kinds of questions to children who have a really innocent perspective about these things. And so, here are some random examples. Uh, Just beginning uh, with dating, uh, the question was, what do most people do on a date? And Mike, age 10 said, on the first date, they just tell each other lies, and that usually gets them interested enough for a second date. (laughs) How about, why, why does love happen between two particular people? And uh, according to John, age nine, no one is sure why it happens, but I heard it has something to do with how you smell. That's why perfume and deodorant are so popular. How do you make a person fall in love with you? Uh, Dell, age six says, tell them that you own a bunch of candy stores. I think that's a good answer. Bart, age nine says, one way is to take the girl out to eat. Make sure it's something she likes to eat. French fries usually work for me, Bart, age nine. Gives that advice. How do you make love endure? Roger, age eight, cuts right to the chase and says, don't forget your wife's name. That will mess up the love. (laughs) Randy, age eight, has a different perspective. Be a good kisser. It might make your wife forget that you never take out the trash. Excuse me. What is the proper age to get married? Tom, age five, says once I'm done with kindergarten, I'm going to find me a wife. Now, Judy, age eight, has a different answer that's very specific and I almost chose not to share it. But this is what she says in answer to the question, what is the proper age to get married? 84 years old. And here's her reasoning. Because at that age, you don't have to work anymore and you can spend all your time loving each other in your bedroom. How many of you think Judy's in for a big surprise? Maybe I should say disappointment. <laughs> where did you learn about marriage? The most obvious answer would be from our parents. <clears throat> but if statistics are correct, many of, you grew up, you, many of you grew up in homes where your parents were divorced. My mother was married and divorced three times when I was growing up. Maybe you read books about marriage. Maybe you had some really, really good premarital counseling. But the question remains... Where did you learn about marriage? Since we're in church, the Sunday school answer would be the Bible. And that would be a really good answer, even though the instructions about marriage in the Bible are honestly, in relation to the entire book, kind of limited. But the instructions that we have are powerful and significant, and that's what we see, or we're going to see today, in Genesis chapter 2, in particular, verses 24 and 25. But as we begin... I want you to know that I'm really familiar with that passage of Scripture. I've preached about it multiple times. I've preached about it in this church multiple times. And when I thought about this, First foundational message for this family values series on marriage. I thought, well, I could put together a list of topical things that you could infuse into your marriage that would help you to have a better marriage, build a better marriage, and I could give a biblical proof text for all of them. But why not just go back to the beginning once again and try to understand what God said about marriage right from the start? Because there are some powerful, powerful truths in those two verses. And because those verses help us understand God's purpose for marriage. But before we even get to Genesis chapter 2, we also learn a little bit about God's purpose for marriage. In Genesis chapter 1, if you're familiar with the book of Genesis, we we see the order of creation, the order with which God created the world. And we get to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, and we read, then God said, let us make man in our image and our likeness that reflects the triunity of God, the Trinity there, God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Spirit. Genesis 127 goes on to say, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. And right from the beginning, we have to acknowledge two things about just men and women, about the creation of men and women. And I'll go about it in reverse order from what we read there in Genesis 127. First, when God created man in his own image, he created them male and female. One of the biggest social issues that we deal with in the world today revolves around gender dysphoria and transgenderism and personal identity. Gender dysphoria, if you're not familiar with that term, describes the struggle a person feels when they believe their biological sex doesn't fit with their Inner perception of who they are, their inner perception of their identity, their gender identity and this is a message on marriage, uh, marriage so i 'm not going to talk about this in detail, but I do feel compelled to say this one thing just by way of introduction here. If you believe the Bible is holy and completely true because it is inspired by God, if you believe it is literally the god breathed revelation that he wanted us to have to guide us as we lived our lives in this world then you can't ignore God's simple statement about gender that happens right in the beginning when God created man he created them male and female God created Adam and Eve at the peak if you go back and look at Genesis chapter 1 at the peak of his creative work and he made them male and female so they could could be complementary in nature so they could be complementary in biological nature and live out what he told them to do in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28 when he said be fruitful and increase in number Now having said that I want you to listen to me close I understand I do that there are people who today who feel the reality who genuinely feel the reality of gender Dysphoria, and I know that there are people today who suffer and struggle under that reality. And that struggle needs to be met with love and it needs to be met with compassion as the first step of offering help. But the conviction of our heart has to be to hold on to the truth of the scriptures, and we have to remember that our personal experiences as we live our lives as we struggle living our lives sometimes in this sinful and broken world, do not alter the sovereign will of God or the sovereign plan of God. Now, the second thing that we see there in that Genesis chapter 1 reference that I shared a moment ago is that when God created man, and we talk about man in general terms to refer to both Adam and Eve, when God created man, he created man in his image, which means he created man to resemble him and to represent him in the world now, we're not talking about image in the sense of likeness or or anything like that. We're talking about image in our ability to have a personal relationship with God. We're talking about image in our ability to exercise reason and to exercise intelligence and to exercise compassion and to exercise morality. The best example of what it means to be created in the image of God is literally seen in Jesus when he came into the world as God in human flesh to save the world. Because in John 14 and verse 9, he was talking to the disciple Philip one day and he said, Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And that's not because Jesus somehow physically looks like God, the Father, but because he resembled God in his relationship with God, and he represented God in the way that he lived his life in this world. And that's what we are to do as well. That's the will of God for all of us. And one of the most powerful settings for us to do that is in the reality of marriage. But it only happens when we follow God's plan for marriage, which was revealed to us in a very simple but powerful way in Genesis chapter 2. So, if you've got your Bibles open there and you're able today, go ahead and stand with me, and we're going to read the Scripture together. Now, I'm going to read Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. But we're only going to talk about verses 24 and 25, but we're just going to flow right into it. So you follow along if you've got your Bible open. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them and whatever the man called each living creature, that was his name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. But for Adam... No suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God <clears throat> made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she, so she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And here's verses 24 and 25. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked. And they felt no shame. All right, there it is. You can be seated. We always ask for God to bless the reading and the hearing of his word. I believe Genesis chapter 2, verses 24 and 25 gives us three fundamental needs. Everyone say needs. Needs that we have to have in place in our marriages to make them everything God desires them to be. And the first one is this. If you'd like to take notes, we need a new space. That's the first thing. Every marriage needs a new space. And we go back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, and we see the reality of this in the first part of the verse. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. The first thing that happens in marriage is the creation of a new space where loyalty is transferred from father and mother to your spouse so a whole new level of faithfulness can be demonstrated. And I'm not talking about a new space in the sense of a new physical home or a new address because this is not just about geography. This is about commitment demonstrated in a very specific way where there is a separation from your father and your mother as you begin a new life together with your spouse. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't continue to have a relationship with your parents or that they're not involved in your lives my children are both grown and married and out of the home but Sandy and I are still involved in their lives and their families we're just involved on a different level than when we were raising them in our home but we recognize and they recognize the truth that they have their own families and they have their own homes and they make their own decisions and that's what it means to leave to leave and create a new space and while it might sound like this is like a no-brainer when it comes to marriage Friends, I'm telling you from my side of the pulpit as a pastor, that's not always the case. And maybe some of you are living out that reality right now. When it comes to the health and growth of a marriage, this is something that absolutely must happen if your marriage is going to be everything God wants it to be. Over my years as a pastor, I've known several families where this God-ordained divine instruction of leaving doesn't take place. And the results can sometimes be disastrous. In fact, let me tell you three things. The three main things that create conflict in a marriage for husbands and wives. And let me tell you this. I didn't read this in a book. This is based on personal experience. 42 years being a pastor in three different churches, talking with counseling, and knowing being involved with people in marriages. Here are the three things that cause the greatest conflict in every marriage. Number one it's sex. Number two is money. And number three is family. When I say family, I'm talking about his family and her family. And any pastor who's had any length of time in ministry will tell you the same thing or at least some iteration of that same thing. When you get married... There absolutely has to be the creation of a new space where you create your own family and your own home and a whole new level of love and faithfulness that can be demonstrated and commitment that can be demonstrated in your lives together. And here's the strongest thing I can say about this. And so I want you to listen to me close. No husband should ever have to doubt whether his wife's loyalty is to him or her parents. And no wife should ever have to doubt whether her husband's loyalty is to her or his parents. It just shouldn't be that way. That's not a part of God's divine plan for marriage. I know the Bible says that we are to honor our father and mother. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Paul reiterates that, ten com- that, that one of the Ten Commandments in his writing to the church in Ephesus. In Ephesians chapter 5, as he writes about marriage in that book. I know the Bible says those things. But when you become an adult, you need to understand that there's a new way for you to honor your father and mother. I like the way a man named Dan Allender put it. Look at these words on the screen. He says, we can honor our own mother and father only if we have first created the proper boundary to serve and protect our spouse. Goes both ways, husbands and wives. This is a simple yet critical part of marriage. Genesis 2.24 says, for this reason, A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. That word united, we could spend a lot of time talking about that if we had the time in the original language of the Old Testament. It's a Hebrew word that describes a permanent and indissoluble union. Think stuck like glue. That's what it means to be united to your wife. And that reminds us of two things. First, it reminds us that God intends marriage to be permanent. And second... This kind of relationship, this new permanent relationship where you are united together with your spouse requires the creation of a new space. That's God's design for marriage. Here's the second thing we learn. Not only do we need a new space, but write this down somewhere. We need a sacred space. That's number two. If you want to build a better marriage, you need a sacred space, and we go back to Genesis 2.24 again, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and then the last part of the verse that we didn't talk about a moment ago, and the two will become one flesh. Now, let me explain to you what I mean with the words sacred space. I really see that primarily in those words that talk about a husband and wife becoming one flesh. Now, the most obvious application of those words is seen in the sexual union that happens between a husband and wife when they get married, something we'll talk about a little bit more in just a few minutes. But I want you to understand that the picture that we're given here in Genesis 2.24, especially at the end of the verse, about this idea of one flesh is more, is supposed to be more than just a reference to the physical union of husbands and wives in marriage. Let me try to explain what I mean by that by telling you this. I don't know if you know this or not. Maybe you do. We've got a lot of great Bible students in this church. But these words that we just read in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24 are found four different times in the Bible. Four different times. So it starts all the way in the beginning, second book of the Bible. I mean, second uh, chapter of the first book of the Bible. But these words are found four different times in the Bible. Why? Well, the first and most obvious answer, I would say, is because... It needs to be there for emphasis, okay, because this is so critical. This, this simple truth about marriage needs to be understood, and so there needs to be an emphasis on it. But there's another answer that we don't fully understand until we read these words the final time they're written in the Bible, which happens in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. And the reason why they're there is because a Christian marriage is supposed to be, listen to me close, a testimony to the world. Your marriage as Christians is supposed to be a testimony to the world of the kind of love Jesus has for the church. Which is to say the kind of love that Jesus has for believers like you and me. Look at the words in Ephesians chapter 5 verses 31 and 32. For this reason... A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And then Paul adds these words. This is a profound, everyone say profound, profound mystery. But I am talking about Christ and the church. Now, here's the the deal, friends. The relationship Jesus has with the church is sacred. And the reason why the relationship Jesus has with the church is sacred is because his love for the church is holy and his love for the church is pure, and his love for the church is self-sacrificing. Jesus came into the world to give his life for the church, which makes it a, which makes his love for the church a sacred love. He literally shed his blood for the church. In an act of incredible self sacrifice. Now, I didn't put this in the PowerPoint, but I was thinking uh, just before I came into church last night about this point, this truth, and my mind went to uh, the book of Acts in the 20th chapter where the apostle Paul says goodbye to the Ephesian elders, and he gives them some final instructions about how they're to shepherd the church. And in Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, this is what Paul says to the Ephesian elders. He said, be shepherds of the church of God, note this, which he bought with his own blood. What Jesus did in love on the cross To make the opportunity for the church to be real in the world was a sacred act of love. A selfless, sacrificial, holy, pure act of love. And Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 5 that the love that we have in the marriage relationship for our, our spouse... Is a sa- it needs to be a sacred love that reflects Jesus' love for the church. It also needs to be holy, and it also needs to be pure. And listen to me really close. It needs to be self-sacrificing, selfless and sacrificial. That's the kind of love that needs to be demonstrated in our marriage relationships. And that kind of love makes those marriage relationships sacred, makes them different, and sets them apart as examples to the rest of the world. And I'm telling you, friends, I'm telling you flat out from practical experience, there are few things in this world that you and I can be involved in that have a greater impact in terms of witness to the rest of the world than a loving, sacrificial marriage. Because let me tell you something about the world around us. They don't care nearly as much about what we say we believe as they care about what works. And when it comes to marriage, here's what works. Loving your spouse with a holy, pure love that is self-sacrificing. Just like Jesus loved the church. And that's why marriages have such a great impact, Christian marriages, sacred marriages can have such a great impact in terms of a witness on the world around us. So how do you develop that? It's one thing to say that and talk about it, even emphasize it, but how do you develop that? Well, let me just give you one simple instruction. The way that you develop this kind of love is by understanding that when you get married, you enter into a covenant, not a contract. You enter into a covenant and not a contract. And here's the difference between the two. A contract is all about protecting your rights and limiting your responsibilities, while a covenant is all about giving up your rights and picking up your responsibilities. Let me say it again. I know it's on the screen behind me. A contract is all about protecting your rights and limiting your responsibilities, while a covenant is all about giving up your rights and picking up your responsibilities. And one of the biggest problems we have in the world today when it comes to marriage, and this has crept into the church among believers as well, is that too many people view marriage as, as a contract rather than a covenant. And just so there's no confusion, God views marriage as a covenant. And you say, well, pastor, what rights do I have to give up? Let's talk about this for a minute. Let me just give you three suggestions. How about giving up the right of priority? And what I mean by that is from the moment you get married, you no longer have the right to decide that you have any other greater earthly priority than your spouse. When you get married, your spouse, your husband, your wife becomes your number one earthly priority and you give up the right to put anything in that spot. Now note that I'm saying earthly priority. And that doesn't change when you have children, friends. As much as we love our children, that doesn't mean you don't love them as much as humanly possible. I mean, you if you can't even you can't even Uh, You can't even put that love in context. All you can say is, I I can't love my son or my daughter or my children any more than I do today. But your spouse is still your number one earthly priority. That doesn't mean that you don't make your children a priority in your life, that you don't take so very serious taking advantage of this small window of time that you'll have to steward their lives before they're grown and gone it just remember it's just that you remember that one day they are going to grow up and one day they are going to be gone and you began with your spouse and you need to end with your spouse and they become your number one earthly priority and I think that truth has its roots in the first part of Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24 when Paul or not Paul I'm sorry when we read for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united stuck like glue To his wife. How about giving up the right of ownership? When you get married, you give your spouse the right to co own and co administrate everything in your life because when you get married, everything goes from yours to ours, from mine to ours. That's the way it's supposed to be. And there's an interesting way the Apostle Paul uh, illustrates this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, don't turn there. We don't have enough time for you to do that. But I'm going to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we're going to put one of the verses up on the screen in a moment. But this is an interesting part of the book of 1 Corinthians because this chapter begins like this. Paul says, now for the matters you wrote about, let me address your questions that you shared with me. And he said, it is good, interestingly enough, it is good for a man not to marry. That's coming from the perspective of Paul who thinks it's good not to marry because then you can devote yourself fully and completely to serving the Lord with no distraction. Verse 2, but, everyone say but, but, since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And then he says in verse 3, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife. That's the one flesh reality that happens in marriage. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. Now listen to what he says in verse 4. Look at it on the screen. The wife's body does not belong to her husband Belong to her alone, rather, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. You give up the right of ownership when you enter into the covenant of marriage. You give up the right of ownership. How about the right of privacy? You give up the right of privacy when you enter into the covenant of marriage. We're going to talk about this verse in just a moment. This second part of our text, Genesis 2.25, says the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Marriage is, it, it is a covenant that gives your spouse free and unhindered access to every single part of your life where nothing is hidden. And if you've got things hidden in your life from your spouse that's, spouse, that's a red flag. If you're sitting here right now listening to me, whether you're right in this room or you're at home and you're listening to me and you're thinking to yourself, there are things that I just cannot tell my spouse that's a red flag because you give up the right of privacy even though I know sometimes those things can be extremely difficult but marriage is a covenant relationship where nothing is hidden at least that's the way it's supposed to be and so let me just go back and reiterate what I said earlier marriage for believers is supposed to be a sacred space that reflects a love that is holy and pure and sacrificial. And when it's that way, it becomes a witness to the rest of the world of the way Christ loves the church. Because his love for the church, his love for you and me is holy and pure and sacrificial. But I also mentioned earlier, and we don't want to ignore this, that it's a sacred space because it's in marriage Where God provides the God-designed, God-honored space for the sexual union between a husband and a wife. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. One of the first things, and I mentioned this earlier, that God told Adam and Eve to do after he created Eve was to be fruitful and increase in number. That happens, we know, through that one flesh act God created for a man and woman. And so this speaks directly to another issue that is huge in our culture and our world today, and that's the reality of same-sex attraction, whatever term you want to use to describe it. For the sake of clarity, I'm compelled to say this. Becoming one flesh in the way God intended can only happen between a man and a woman. And it's the will of God that it only happen in the covenant of marriage. God never intended the act of becoming one flesh to be something that was just biological. God created this to happen between a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage because that's when you not only become one flesh, but in marriage, and you know this if you're married, you also become one body, and you become one soul, and you become one mind, and on and on and on. And that is another aspect of the marriage relationship that makes it holy and makes it sacred And the Bible is really, really clear about this, friends. Even though we live in a world and a culture where the lines with this are being distorted worse and worse every day and the lies of the world are creeping into every part of our lives, any kind of sexual relationship that happens outside of the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, is outside of the will of God and there are no exceptions. There are no exceptions exceptions if you believe the bible is true and that is the god-inspired revelation that he wanted us to have to guide and direct our lives whenever sexual activity happens outside of the covenant of marriage between a husband and wife the bible calls that sexual immorality if you have an older translation of the bible it calls it fornication the word sexual immorality come from a single word in the original language of the New Testament, the Greek language. It's the Greek word porneia. We get the English word pornography from the Greek word porneia. And the Greek word porneia talks about any illicit sexual activity and illicit sexual activity is any sexual activity that takes place outside of the covenant of marriage. And we have to protect ourselves from sexual immorality. And you need to protect your children from sexual immorality. You need to be really honest and upfront with them because they're living in a world that is not at all like the world that you grew up in. Look at these words on the screen from Hebrews chapter 13 and verse four. The Hebrew writer says, marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. There's that word pornea again that's translated sexually immoral there in that verse. We're told, first of all, that marriage should be honored by all. The word honored in the original language of the New Testament is the Greek word timios. It means marriage should be viewed as precious. It should be viewed as esteemed. And it should be viewed as something that is especially dear. It should be honored by all. And then... We're told that part of honoring marriage is honoring the sexual purity of the marriage bed because God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. Those two words, again, are the single word porneia, and they describe any illicit sexual activity that happens outside of the covenant of marriage. Now, I'm going to pause right here, and I'm going to say something that's really important. I want you to listen to me. God forgives sexual sin just like he forgives other sin. Somebody say amen to that. A lot of people make mistakes growing up. A lot of people make mistakes in their life. A lot of people who are desperate to be loved, desperate to find some sense of of meaning and commitment and community and care in their life will do just about sometimes anything to receive it. But there are false ways to receive it that can damage your soul. And God never intended sex to be just a biological experience no matter what the world says, the world system says as it's under the control of our enemy, the devil. Don't buy into that and don't let your children buy into that. There's too much at stake. It's not just a biological act. One more thing before we move on. There are a lot of people today who support same-sex attraction by saying that Jesus never talked about it, meaning that Jesus never opposed it. But that's not true. Look at these words on the screen from Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 and 5. This is one of the times... One of the four times you read these words in the scriptures apart from uh, Genesis chapter 2 and then as we saw earlier, Ephesians chapter 5. Haven't you read, he replied, this is Jesus answering the Pharisees' question about divorce. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become flesh. What happens is Jesus affirms clearly what God said from the very beginning with regard to marriage and the sacred act of becoming one flesh. And there is not one single verse of Scripture in the Bible from cover to cover that gives any kind of affirmation to same-sex relationships. Not one. Now, having said that, And I want you to know that I feel a heaviness on my heart about this because I know people firsthand who struggle in this part of life or who have struggles in their family with this part of life in this sinful fallen world. Just like I said earlier about gender dysphoria, I know there are people that struggle with this attraction. And our responsibility, again, is to meet them with love and compassion, to not demonize them. But to meet them with love and compassion, all the while holding on to the truth of the scriptures. Number three, and I got to do this one quickly. You need a, a new space, you need a sacred space, and the third thing we're told here is that you need an intimate space. I think the most powerful part of our passage is, the, is what we read in verse 25. When we read, the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. And when I've I've taught about this passage in the past, I've always told you that in my mind, this is the perfect picture of marital intimacy. And that's an intimacy that can only be experienced in marriage between a husband and a wife. that's not to say that everyone has to be married because I don't believe that's true. I don't believe the Bible teaches that. We talked about that last year in a message series called Family Matters. But there is an aspect or a dimension of intimacy that can only be experienced by a husband and a wife in the covenant of marriage. It happens when they become one flesh. But it's more than just one flesh in the sense of a sexual union. They are one in body. They are one in mind. They are one in soul. If you're married you understand what that's like. And it's a level of intimacy that becomes not just the foundation for a better marriage, but it is a level of intimacy that becomes the foundation for the most satisfying and fulfilling marriage that you can ever experience in your life. And here's why. Because the power of intimacy Intimacy is powerful because intimacy makes us feel known. And that is an innate desire of every single person created in the image of God. That's why marriage needs to provide relational intimacy, and it needs to provide emotional intimacy, and it needs to provide spiritual intimacy, and it needs to provide sexual intimacy. It needs to be all of those things. And if your definition begins and ends, if your definition of intimacy rather begins and ends with the physical act of sex, you're making a mistake because intimacy is much more than that. And if you have relational intimacy in your marriage and you have emotional intimacy in your marriage and you have spiritual intimacy in your marriage, then your sexual intimacy will be everything you ever dreamed it could be. And so the question is, how do we develop that intimacy? And I think we develop that intimacy through three things. Through time, through truth, and through trust. When you're married, you have to spend time together. You didn't get married to live a solo life alone. You got married to share your life with someone. And you have to invest in time together to do that. And that will happen when your spouse is your number one earthly priority when you're married, you have to tell the truth about everything. And I'm not just talking about what you do today. I'm talking about everything in your life. You can't hide the things in your life, no matter how difficult they may be to talk about. And if you have that time, and if you have that truth, then in the end, you're going to have complete trust. And that's going to lead to the intimacy that your marriage needs to thrive, not just to survive, but to thrive. Genesis chapter 2, verses 24 and 25 says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. And that is the strongest picture that we can find in the Bible of marital intimacy because it shows us honesty and openness and transparency and safety and unconditional acceptance. And that's what marriages are built for. So if you're married today, and I need to end this, and the team can get ready to come. If you're married today, and you can honestly say that you're living out the reality of these things, you're living out the reality of a new space and a sacred space and an intimate space, then my word to you is just keep doing what you're doing. And, and don't ever take it for granted. Keep building on it day after day after day. Don't get overconfident and lazy because Satan would like nothing more than to destroy your relationship and your marriage and your witness to the world that happens through your marriage. If you're married and you'll be honest enough to say today, we're struggling, we're not experiencing the fullness that comes from that new space, that sacred space and that intimate space, then my word for you today is don't waste another day not taking some kind of action. Not another day. Take the steps you need. Marriage is often difficult. See, here's the thing about marriage. marriage. Marriage is one of those things in life. I know I'm going a little bit long today. I, I'm sorry, not sorry at the same time. <laughs> marriage is one of the aspects of life that most people just assume they'll know how to do. Well, you know, we assume that everybody knows how to manage money. We assume that everybody knows how to, you know, fill in the blank. We assume that everybody, once you get married, you fall in love. Once you get married, you say, I do, that everything just comes naturally after that. But that's not the case because here's the deal. Some of you right now, some of you listening to me, you never grew up in a home where you saw any of this modeled for you in a productive way. So how were you supposed to know? Don't just assume that it's something that you can handle on your own. If it's not what it needs to be, then take steps today to do something about that. You can get help through our soul care ministry here at the church. You can get a counseling referral from us here at church. We will do anything within our power to help you in these areas of life. And above all else, friends, let's read this verse off the screen together and this is how we'll close. Above all else, this is what we need to remember. Read these with me. Above all else, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. If your marriage is not all that it should be today, all that it could be today, all that God wants it to be today, then then look at your heart. Look at your heart. Maybe you need a new heart. Maybe you need a renewed heart. I always told my children when they were growing up, if you want your life to change, you need to change. Be the change first. You be the change that you want to see happen in your marriage. And trust God. Father in heaven, we love you so much, and we're so grateful that you blessed us with the ability to share our lives with someone in love, in a love that is pure and a love that is holy and a love that is honest and a love that is self-sacrificing. And I pray, God, that that would be the reality of every married couple in this church. That would be the goal of everyone who wants to be married one day and that we would always cling to the truth of your word. To guide every aspect of our lives. Bring healing. To broken marriages today. To hurting marriages today. By leading. Leading us to action. We pray that in Jesus name. Amen. Hey would you stand. And we're going to sing one more song before we're dismissed. Um, while, while we're singing this song, if you're a prayer counselor, would you come on down front so you can be clearly seen? And if you have a need in your life today, would you let somebody pray with you today? Don't worry about what anybody might think if you come down. It, if maybe it's something about marriage and your marriage or the marriage of somebody that you know and love, maybe it's another need, in your, another need in your life, whatever it might be, take a step toward God today by taking a step down here and letting somebody pray with you.